I feel like that just took some of you to church already. Jeez, you're <laughs> hooting and hollering. Um, I hope you guys are uh, not too exhausted at the end of the semester, but anyone excited for break? Like, yeah, it needs to happen. Does anyone get to graduate at this break? You're like, please, I don't want to admit it yet, right? And, yeah, there you are. You admitted it, I appreciate that. So if you don't know what that is, uh, that's the SALT conference, that little hype or hit tape, as college football teams would say, to get you excited about uh, what God is doing. So every year, uh, at the first weekend of February, all of the SALT Network churches gather together, all the SALT companies get together, and we kind of have this big family reunion where we get to hear from a couple of the pastors who will be planting churches that year, uh, just learn, be together, eat food in Des Moines. It's a great time. And you will try to find a place to stay and probably be exhausted. And so you'll have that emotional moment with Jesus. It'll be great. I'm not saying that's what, why it happens. But I want you guys to sign up for this. The early bird deadline, okay, December 31st. So if you're like, if I want to save some money, December 31st. I actually forgot how much it costs. Sorry. You should ask Shay, wherever you are, Shay. Thank you for being you. Um, she's our coordinator. Anytime you get an email or something happens on time, it's usually because of Shay. Okay, you have to understand that. She's the true hero of Salt Company, yes. It's true. Wow. So you're screaming at Aaron Rodgers, yelling about God, but you won't give it up for Shay. Okay, okay, there we go. Okay. Yeah, I feel like that's patronizing. But I want you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 8. Okay, so 1 Corinthians chapter 8. So we're gonna end our semester halfway through the book of Corinthians, we're going to finish up the book next semester. We're not done yet. And while you're turning there, um, I'm going to tell you a story about a very intense moment that happened in my home this morning. So uh, I was donating plasma at about, what was it? Uh, yeah, pastor life. Got to pay for a new van door. You know how it is. New brakes, things like that. Easy way to make money. Um, Side note, I was talking to a lady and I had to go to the dentist today too. It's been a banner day for the medical field in my life. But uh, she told me when her little brother was little, the, her little brother bit the dentist, so the dentist slapped him. Yeah, isn't that crazy? I'd never heard of that, but it was a long time ago. She was a pretty older gal. So I'm assuming that was more like, okay, it wouldn't be okay now. But I'm sitting there, you know, and the dumbest question they ask you is they put the needle in, they go, does it feel okay? You, no, you just stabbed metal into my arm and you're taking my blood out. It doesn't feel okay, but it's like 50 bucks, so it feels fine, okay? I'm gonna start pumping, right? Here we go. And I get a call from my wife and she's in a panic. And okay, so we are watching um, my in-law's dog, Brutus, this just mutton-smelling, nasty little Yorkie who's ancient and so cute and wonderful, but smells like butt, okay? And... My wife doesn't necessarily like when he likes to lay in bed with her. And so I thought, oh, like Finley's up playing puzzles this morning. I'll just set Brutus in there and let him sleep on her bed while she does puzzles. Okay, so context. So my wife goes, Finley tried to kill Brutus. He's, he's foaming at the mouth. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. What's going on? He's throwing up everywhere. I can't get his mouth open. And I'm like, wait, what happened? She goes, nothing. I got to go. Click. <laughs> what do I do? What do I do? I can't really take this out right now. What do I do? What do I do? Get the phone call. Okay, so Finley wrapped a string around Brutus's neck and she basically choked him to death. He's gagging everywhere. Okay, now he's throwing up. Oh, I think I have to go. Okay. Oh, okay. Uh, I said, can he breathe? Like, 
is he, is he moving? What's he doing? She's like, yeah, I think he's fine. I think he's fine. She goes, oh, no, I have to go again. And then I was like, oh, no, I get a text. He's pooping everywhere. <laughs> okay? And you have to understand, I don't understand, but I've been told that when you're pregnant, smells enter this new stratosphere. It's like a pregnant person can smell things on a level normal people can't. So imagine this foaming at the mouth, barfing dog, all of that smell, right? And then he decides just all over Finley's room. She was having such a hard time that she had to ask Hannah, the college guy that lives with us, to come up and clean up the poop for her because she ran into the sink and just threw up into the sink. And you know what, if that, if this story isn't the gospel, right? God gives us a good thing and we try to kill it, right? That's just the gospel. That'll preach right there. So, case closed. That's the pastor move for you. Wanted to share that with you. Merry Christmas, my gift to you. Life with kids, and there's two more coming. I need to pray. Oh my. Okay, 1 Corinthians 8. I'm gonna read, I'm gonna read this to us, then I'm gonna talk to you and we're gonna pray. So, to give you a little context as we jump into this, Paul has been now addressing the Corinthians on issues that they wrote to him, right? There's no email, there's no text, like they could not FaceTime Paul, get an answer quick to their theological issues, and then keep going. They would have to wait for periods of time to receive this letter back and get the answers to their questions. So he's moved on from marriage, sex, singleness, and he's now gonna start talking about something else. Let's figure out what that is. He says, now about food, sacrifice to idols. We know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone thinks he knows anything, he does yet, not yet know as he ought to know it. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. About eating food sacrificed to idols, then we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, he's basically explaining like, look, there's no such thing as an idol in this food, and we know there are all kinds of false gods in the world and things that people worship. He says in verse six, yet for us there is one God, the Father. All things are from him and we exist for him. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ. All things are through him and we exist through him. However, not everyone has this knowledge. Some have been so used to idolatry up until now that when they eat food sacrificed to idols, their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not bring us close to God. We are not worse off if we don't eat and we're not better off if we do eat. But be careful that this right of yours in no way becomes a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you, the one who has knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, won't his weak conscience be encouraged to eat food offered to idols? So the weak person, the brother or sister for whom Christ died, is ruined by your knowledge. Now when you sin like this against brothers and sisters and wound their weak conscience, you're sinning against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother or sister to fall, I will never again eat meat so that I won't cause my brother or sister to fall. Okay, so we're gonna dive in to that passage, but you know, it was interesting, Jake Eats just talked about this idea that what we get in the gospel is we get God. And God has taken me on a little bit of a journey this semester where he's revealed to me that often my life was doing a lot of things for God without God. So much of my life was in a hurry to the next thing, to the next meeting, to the next this. I was almost sleepwalking my Christian life. 
believing I was doing the right things because I was a pastor, but recognizing I was doing all these things without the one they were for. And I wonder if that's you. See, what I've also noticed is it seems like in our context, we're always in a hurry, especially to get over and done with church. I think so often we program our church services to have this many songs, this long of a message, and then we get everybody out because we've been convinced that church is a product, that Jesus is something to be consumed when it's convenient to us and then to leave there until we come back to it the next week. And I'm telling you right now, that is not the gospel. That is not what Jesus Christ came to give you and I. Jesus Christ came to give us back life with God, both, yes, in corporate settings like this, not in a hurry, but also in every single little moment of your life. And so what you might actually begin to see next semester is a few more worship songs. It's really simple. We just want to sing more praises to the one who's given us reason to praise him. You might see that I'm not going to be in a hurry watching the clock to make sure that's over with. Some of you are like, great, I don't like when he talks that much. Because I'm convinced that the thing all of us need is not more time being in a hurry, but actually more time with God. And if you're willing to come here every Thursday, then I'm going to make sure with all that I can that that's exactly what we do is we get time with God. And so I want to pray to him. Because if you came here to listen to me be funny and creative, I want to give you something far better to listen to, and that's God himself. Let me do that. Jesus, I confess right now it would be so easy for me to just pray a prayer of Christian words that I know maybe have meaning but would really be empty, and so I just want to stop. And I want to acknowledge that tonight I want to laugh and I want to see your word and I want to be with my family, but most of all, I want to be with you, with them. And I don't want to pray like an orphan. I don't have to beg expecting nothing. I want to pray like the son of heaven that you've made me, knowing that my God can't wait to give me good things. And I pray that every believer in this room if they hear nothing of what I'm about to say, would hear this. You are not an orphan. You're a son or a daughter. You don't have to beg God, hoping maybe he'll listen. You have to see that he can't wait to bless you. And he desires to give you good things. And so, God, the good thing we're asking from you now is for you to show up as we read your word and as we figure out what exactly it's saying to us. Would we leave going into break or finals week not the same people? Would the conviction that only your spirit brings not only last for a few hours after the sermon, but last for a lifetime? Would the thing you teach us tonight be something that stays with us and changes us? Because you were here, and we stayed long enough, and we listened. We're grateful for you, Jesus, and we want to be with you now. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so like I said, Paul's now moved past this whole sex and singleness thing to this issue of food sacrifice to idols. And he starts his little discourse there in chapter eight. He says, now concerning or about food sacrifice to idols. And I read that and was like, what? Like, what is he talking about? Okay, so if you want to think about how would this be relevant to us, imagine if um, those of you who maybe are uh, hipster and like me and think that it's, you're a hipster because you wear Carhartt hats and drink craft beer, um, you 
ask Paul this. You, okay, so Paul, what about drinking beer and being in bars? Okay, what he's saying is there's this controversial issue that's saturated culture and it's divided our church. That's what's happened. And they had some questions like, how do we live in a culture where this whole food sacrifice to idols things exist? See, Corinth was a epicenter for religious worship. All kinds of false gods were worshiped in Corinth. Like maybe even hundreds, they suspect, with the runes they've dug up from this ancient city. And so everywhere you turned, false gods were being worshiped. And the primary way that you would worship a false god is to sacrifice food to it. And so while we go to restaurants wondering, does this have GMOs? Does it have antibiotics? Is it a dog or a horse? Like, or is it really a cow? You know, like McDonald's had that weird pink stuff. Remember that? Like fake news that went around? Maybe just me? They're chicken nuggets. They're okay. Um, but we asked those questions. What they would ask is, hey, did this get sacrificed to Zeus? Right? Imagine going into Burger King and having to ask, like, hey, did you sacrifice my chicken sandwich to Zeus? Nope. That's God's sacrifice for you. Okay, that one's for me, right? Everywhere the Corinthian believers turned, there was false worship. And see, this is why it was such an issue for them. So what would happen is you'd go, you'd buy some meat, or you'd take meat from your own farm, maybe the best you had, a goat or something like that. You'd take it to this false god's temple, and you'd offer it to the false god. And then the priest would light the meat on fire for whatever reason, and then they wouldn't use the whole animal though, so the priest would take that home and eat that, but if it was too much, he would actually sell it to people in the market to then sell to just anybody. Okay, so you bring the meat to the temple, you sacrifice it to the God, but you probably didn't need the whole cow, so you take part of the cow, you give it to the priest. The priest doesn't need to feed his whole family off of that, so he sells it. But here's the problem. They then believed, a lot of them, that just offering that animal to this false god, no matter what stage in the process it was, was an act of worship. And all of your basic restaurants in the ancient world probably had meat that at one point was either sacrificed, dedicated to, or worshiped over in regards to a false god. So this whole idea of these pagan gods saturating culture, saturated our culture the same way smartphones do, like it was everywhere. They could not avoid the question of what do I do with food sacrificed to idols. And like any church, not everyone was in the same place in their apprenticeship to Jesus, right? Some people were very new to this and just fresh out of their life, eating that meat and worshiping those idols. And some had gone on for a long time. And then even some had learned some things about how true or untrue this whole worship process was for them. And that's where the problems had started. That's where a lot of the issues came up, especially for Corinth, this one about food. And if you think about it, a lot of the Christian life is not very black and white. We face a lot of issues that are not very clear. There are some that are clear, like, should you do Coke? No, don't do Coke. Simple. But how about, uh, should I kiss my boyfriend or girlfriend? Some people could argue that's not that clear. Okay, I'm 21. Should I drink? It's not always super clear. There are just different things. Should I watch certain movies? Should I listen to certain music? We can kind of parse it all out and figure out all those issues, but the, the Bible isn't always super clear on them, and so Paul's going to introduce some wisdom to use for you and I when it comes to how we should view some of these things. 
because knowledge itself is not that helpful unless it's filled with love. And that was actually creating a pretty serious problem in the church. See, in the church, there were probably two groups of people. There were those who had knowledge, either by just living their Christian life long enough or maybe learning from Paul when he had been around the last trip to Corinth or by studying under maybe their local pastor, if they had one of those. They had learned the truth of verse four. It says that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no God but one. So there was this group that they could eat any of the meat, didn't bother them. They knew like, okay, I'm not worshiping this false God if I have this steak, like it's totally fine. I can, I can do that. It doesn't bother me. I don't feel guilty or condemned. I'm not worshiping it because it's, it's false. There's only one true God. But there were others in the church. And this is where the problem really started. In verse 7, it talks about that camp, that group of people. It's those who have been so used to idolatry that up until now, when they eat food sacrificed to an idol, their conscience, being weak, is defiled. So there are these, these weaker believers, maybe younger believers. It's not translated that way, but maybe they were younger, maybe they're weak. But they had a problem still eating this meat. Because for whatever reason, wherever they were on their journey with Jesus, it just didn't sit well. They really did think that to eat that meat meant they were worshiping another God and, and not the one true God. And so they would feel like they were sinning and it would cause real issues. It's like a recovering alcoholic going to a bar the day after they got out of rehab. It's probably just not good, and they might feel like something's very, very wrong. It's not a safe place for them. And if you have been with us over the last few weeks, you remember that the Corinthians were really prideful, right? They were very arrogant people in a lot of different ways, especially when it came to knowledge, to knowing things and thinking that that was like the best thing. And Paul knew that, and so he says, actually, right as he begins his letter, you'll see he says, now about food sacrifice to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Okay, what Paul is saying, he's like, look, okay, I know that we all know that there's really no idol in the meat, right? He's trying to get, okay, we know, we know there's nothing wrong with the meat, I get that, yes, it is true, whether you have a weak conscience or a strong conscience, There's nothing wrong with the meat. But what Paul wants them to realize is knowledge itself is not the way of the kingdom. Just having the right facts is not the place you stop. It's actually just the starting point. See, it says, Paul says, look, knowledge puffs up. Knowledge puffs up. It's empty. But love, love builds up. What makes the knowledge we gain in our walk with Jesus really powerful is the way it turns us then to love the world and the people around us. When it comes to what you learn about God or how you grow as a believer, it's not enough to just have all the right facts if it doesn't actually lead you to the right kind of life. So Paul's saying to them, look, it's, it's just not enough for you to just know this. And he even reiterates that point. He says in verse two, if anyone thinks he knows anything, he does not yet know it as he ought to know it. He's like, if you think you've arrived on a topic, especially about God, you have no idea. You're actually much farther from understanding that at all. You're way off. If what you know just stays up here or you think you've figured it all out, you've actually missed it entirely. That's what 
Paul is trying to communicate to the Corinthians. But then he drops this line. But if anyone loves God, he's known by God. And I'm going to save that one for later. So what he says, Paul's looking to say, okay, I know you know the right things. But it's not actually done what true knowledge of God should do which should be leading you to love other people. What it's actually done is just puffed you up and you're being arrogant. You're being prideful in what you believe. It's not that Paul thought knowledge was bad either, okay? Knowledge is a good thing. I mean, if you've read the book of Romans, you know Paul was an incredibly smart human being. So knowledge is a good thing, but it's how you use your knowledge that really makes it what it's supposed to be and actually good the way the kingdom defines it. Because the true law of the kingdom of God is the law of love. When it comes to life as a follower of Jesus, just knowing things about Jesus or gaining theological knowledge for just the knowledge is not the goal. Everything you learn about God is so that you can be a greater lover of his people and of lost people. Of his people and of lost people. I mean, Jesus said it himself in John 13, 35. He says, look, this is how everyone's going to know that you follow me, if you love one another. You notice he didn't say, if you know all the right things and have really great apologetics and are really theologically sound, then people are going to know Christianity must be true. No, he makes it very clear. It's the way you treat other people, especially the people in the church that will determine whether or not people will see me in what you're doing. We are nothing as God's people if we are not filled with love. And if you are like me and you've looked out at the church as a whole, maybe you'd agree and say, I think that's the one thing that's missing more than anything else, is love. We have really smart people who write really smart books We can know all the right answers. And then a lot of those we really don't know because we'll probably find a verse that makes us think otherwise. But what we are missing in Christian culture, what we're actually lacking, I believe, in our ability to show the world Jesus is our ability to first love this room, love the people in the church, and then loving the people outside of the church. And so I think this is a timely sermon for us Hopefully for you, it's actually destroyed my life, and we'll get to that. But it's been so good for me to sit in this passage, and so I'm going to make you sit in it with me, okay? I want to unpack some terms, though, so that we understand, like, what is this passage really saying? Because it talks about, like, weak conscience, younger brother, freedom, all those kinds of things. So what is your conscience? It's not Jiminy Cricket, okay? It's not Jiminy. You know what I'm talking about? Okay, just want to make sure I wasn't absolutely dating myself. Or like you might think of your conscience like the, the angel you on one side and the devil you on the other side. So like Finley this morning was like, pet the dog, kill the dog, right? <laughs> and she listened to that one that was like, kill the dog. I don't know what. I'm not worried about her being on her own and having to fight an attacker. Like can you imagine this little four-year-old like Hella the goddess of death? Wrap him up. Anyways, she's a beast. She's a beast. Okay. What is your conscience then? What is your conscience? It's your awareness of what you believe to be right and wrong. A conscience is your awareness of what you believe 
to be right and wrong. So it doesn't mean what actually is right and wrong. It's just what you believe to be right and wrong, right? So like in high school, I had a friend who thought it was wrong to use LimeWire, and I did not. Click, 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 free music for me, right? I was all about that. It did not bug me, but it was wrong. I was stealing, right? But some of you were like, me too. It's okay, there's grace. There's grace, I think. You should pray. No, there is. I'm kidding. <laughs> That's so not true. Remember when Stephen said dogs weren't going to heaven? Remember that. Not what I just said. I love you, Stephen. I'm going to make fun of you in a few minutes. Okay. Awareness of what you believe to be right and wrong, not what is. Okay, so what's a weak conscience? What's a weak conscience? So if you have a weak conscience, what's going on with you? It's not that it's wimpy, like it can't handle things. It, it actually just means that it's overactive, that it's actually probably finding fault with the self way more than it should be. I have a friend who he talked to me about it and it actually sounds like it's very anxiety filled. You're constantly wondering, did I just upset God? Was that wrong? Was that right? Should I do it again? Should I apologize? I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. It's just this constant doubt, this uncertainty, all with a desire to, to participate. Because that's the other thing I think we need to, to talk about, okay? Because when I first heard weak, I thought legalistic. And I'm going to define the two of those things. So a weak conscience, this is how you can define it. It's tempted to participate in something. So a weak conscience, is some, it's tempted to participate in something that creates a war inside themselves and it gives them a heart of anxiety. Okay, I'm going to define that again. So a weak conscience, it's that they're tempted to participate or they have this, some level of desire to participate but then it creates a war inside themselves and then a heart of anxiety, not sure. Is it right? Is it wrong? I don't know. So that's weak. Legalistic. This is a legalistic conscience. They're not tempted to participate. They just get pissed at the, the thing they see going on, okay? So they look at the, the sin that, or what they perceive to be sin and they don't go, oh, I think I really want to do that. They go, I'm going to judge that person. They're wrong. A legalistic conscience is not tempted to participate, it's just tempted to get angry. And it's a heart of arrogance that leads to judgment. So the big difference you need to see in there is a weak conscience is tempted to participate, a legalistic conscience is just tempted to judge. And you guys, Jesus' favorite people to troll and mess with were the Pharisees, the legalists. It was like he was looking for a way to upset them sometimes, like, oh, I'm not supposed to heal on the Sabbath. Come here, man, with a crippled hand. They're watching. Boom, healed. Right? He loved to stir up their, their, their judgmental hearts, not just to expose it, but to hopefully heal it. And often their hearts were too hard to receive what Jesus was trying to do. So he's not a jerk. But what Jesus was doing with those hearts was revealing the true nature. The Pharisees were never tempted to participate in the things Jesus was doing. They often just got angry and then eventually so angry they killed him. Right? So those are the differences. And then the other thing we have to realize is when it comes to this issue of weak conscience, it's not on matters that are really clear in Scripture. It's things that are way more subjective, like language. Okay, so you guys, were you here for when Rudy taught? Were you guys here for that? Yeah, so great dude, potty mouth. I'm gonna tell you a story. So they stayed the weekend, him and his wife. Great time, having fun. We're playing a card game and him and his wife were losing to me and my wife, because duh. And, <laughs> and they kept going, frick, frick, ah, frick it, frick. 
And then about two hours into this, Finley boop, 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 sits up. And she had been listening because all of a sudden something, she spilled something. She goes, ah, frick it. Frick. Like, oh, frick. And both of them were like, oh, no, what do I do? And I was the only one who laughed and didn't do anything but reinforce negative behavior. <laughs> okay, so like, we could probably argue all day long, actually, like, is fricket a bad thing? Like, I don't know. Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. We really could argue that, and a lot of you would come down on different sides. But the question in that moment wasn't, was it a right or wrong thing? It was, who's around me, and is it the best thing to say? See, Molly and Rudy's error was that they were not considering that there were other smaller ears around them, and it actually led then Finley into sin, like, that little heart knew it was bad, right? Because she used it a few days afterwards in a, in a place of anger or frustration. So their actions, although maybe could have been in the gray area, that's not really the issue. The issue is Molly and Rudy weren't thinking about the people around them and the consequences of their actions. I think where you might actually face those temptations or have failed to think about that, the easy one, alcohol, Right? There are people in your life who are of age and yet lived a life where they were slaves to alcohol. Is drinking in front of them or with them the best choice? Maybe not. Honestly, there are people who, in relationships, maybe one person in the relationship had major issues going way too far with a previous relationship physically, and so you're being unloving if you're trying to push those boundaries or you're trying to do things with them that they actually don't really feel great about and would actually lead them into greater sin. That could be a problem. Then you can go after what kind of stuff do you watch on TV? What kind of music do you listen to? What kind of words are you using? What kind of words are you using? Those are kind of the basics. And I think though, if I were to zoom out and where I kind of want to bring this conversation is the reality that we face, all of us in our culture, very unique cultural roadblocks to doing this well. We face very unique cultural roadblocks to doing this well. And it comes from issues with our ability to understand or decipher between culture's definition of freedom and God's definition of freedom. So when you think about like freedom in Christ, what does that mean? We're gonna unpack that a little bit. Because I do think culture's definition has totally swallowed Jesus's or Christ's definition of freedom. And I want to unpack it. So when we think of freedom in America, we think it's freedom to do whatever I please. When we think of freedom, we think of it as like, I want to do whatever I want to do because it makes me happy. And that's actually reinforced. We're told that, yeah, you should be able to do whatever you want. Believe the truth that makes you happy. Do the things that make you happy. You are free to do whatever you want. But here's the thing that's attached to that freedom that makes it toxic. It's regardless of how it affects anyone else. As long as it's the thing that makes you happy, as long as it's true for you, as long as it frees you up, then forget what all the people would want to say. They're just being judgmental. You need to do you. You need to be happy. And that's not at all the freedom that Jesus came to give us. So the, the question culture would have you ask is, what are you free to do that makes you happy? But the question that, that Jesus would have you ask is, what are you free to give up? for the good of others. 
See, true freedom in Jesus is first the ability to finally say no to sin, but then ultimately to ourselves. We cannot forget that Jesus made it clear that true freedom comes in total self-denial. True gospel kingdom freedom comes not in being free to do whatever you want, but actually having the freedom to deny yourself of those lesser desires, to deny yourself of personal freedoms for what? For the sake of others. It was not theoretical or metaphorical when Jesus said, pick up your cross and follow me. He really did mean you should face things in your life that you'll need to let go if you want to go where I go and do what I do. True Christian freedom is not what am I free to do, but what am I free to give up? And then the the question that we find that in is verse 9. Paul said, be careful that this freedom or right of yours in no way becomes a stumbling block to the weak. And culture would say, forget that. You can do whatever you want. You're free. But Jesus would say, no, please listen to that because it matters. Don't let the freedom you have in Christ cause those around you to struggle or fall into sin. But this is then where we find the second issue that our culture pushes on us almost every day, the second roadblock that we can't seem to get through, or at least it's very hard to, and it's just selfishness. It's just selfishness. It's individualistic thinking. It's, it's this idea like the only person we think about, okay, so I love you, Stephen, but guys, earlier this fall, I was uh, driving home and I lived near Stephen and it was when it was not nine degrees out um, and it didn't hurt when we went outside. Uh, it was actually when it was lovely and nice and the leaves were starting to turn yellow and I was actually proud of Iowa for the Florida people to see it. Um, but here's Mary Stewart, Stephen's wife. She's walking ahead of him with, with Cato, their incredible fluffy cloud dog. Um, he's amazing. But if you go to their house sad, Cato will know, and he'll just snuggle up next to you and make you happy. It's amazing. Sorry. I'm just thinking about Cato, Stephen. I don't know where you are, but I really like that dog. Anyway, so that dog and Stephen's wife are walking, and then here's Stephen. He's on his phone, right? And what Stephen doesn't see is this massive tree branch but I see it. And I'm like, oh yeah. (laughs) And here comes Steven. And sure enough, he hits it. And I yelled something. I don't remember what. And then I texted him later, like, stare at your wife, man. What are you doing? Get off your phone, right? It's biblical. It's a good thing. But a lot of us, okay, this is us. My life, my life, my life. And we're constantly thinking about what choices can I make to make me happy? We're not focused on the world around us. And so we smash into not trees, but people. We don't recognize that our choices have an effect on the people around us. The way you're living matters to the people around you, whether you know it or not, but especially if they're believers. Especially if they're believers. See, we have this, the most self-absorbed culture in the world where we have pocket shrines that we carry around constantly curating lives that are all about us. No other culture has had that. You know that, right? Like an an ability to anytime they want. I bet people want to know about me, 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 right? That's not how all of you use it, but most of us use it that way, right? But what it does, even subconsciously, is it makes us only concerned with ourselves. Here's something that I did that absolutely destroyed my life. I tried at the end of the day to think back, how many times did I think of someone else today? And there were many days where, guess what the number was? Zero. Zero. 
From the moment we wake up to the moment we go back to bed, most of us live our days on this selfish autopilot where our only goal is our own freedom, our own happiness, and our own pleasure. And what that actually does is it makes us the most unloving people in the world because it turns people into objects to be used or avoided to our own ends instead of people to be loved for the sake of Christ. The question I had to ask myself and now I want to put before you is, do you think about the way your life is affecting the lives around you? How many times in a day do you make a conscious choice to maybe say no to yourself or to serve another person that isn't also attached to somehow it serving you or helping you? Do we think about the way our lives are affecting the lives of those around us? Because what we find in verse 11, Paul says that this weak person can be ruined by our knowledge. For us, I think it should be, can be ruined by your knowledge and yet lack of awareness, your negligence. You and I can be unintentionally ruin, ruining the faith of others. And it's really just because we're not even thinking about them at all. And lovelessness has consequences. So you can ruin the faith of other people. It is not an uncommon story for an alcoholic to find Jesus, become friends with a Christian who tells them, well, you're free in Christ now, you should just drink. Come on, you can do it, it's not a big deal. Or it's not uncommon for us to just, I, I, don't, I want the Holy Spirit to put in your mind maybe what it is that you're doing that might totally affect the faith of another person. Because I could list off the easy ones, but I think he has a specific one for you. And what it then says, and this one gives me the heebie-jeebies, honestly, is verse 12. When you sin like this against brothers and sisters and wound their weak conscience, you are sinning against Christ. Okay? You are sinning against Christ. Imagine the difference our behavior, or the, the difference it would make to our behavior if we actually looked at other Christians and the way we live around them and live towards them is if they were Jesus himself. I would be, unfortunately, a dramatically different person in many, many contexts with many other people. If I actually thought about, okay, my actions might affect Jesus. Like, and I know that's kind of a weird way to think about it, but I feel like that's kind of the heart of what the text is saying there. So if you're like me, you begin to kind of go like, okay, I want to avoid that. Like, what do I do? I don't like that. It makes me uncomfortable. I don't know how to, to wrestle with this. What we need to do is first be more like the Apostle Paul. Look what he says in verse 13. He says, therefore, so knowing this knowledge, how do I love? If food causes my brother or sister to fall, I will never again eat meat. Ron Swanson would not like that. I will never again eat meat so that I won't cause my brother or sister to fall. Do you see, Paul is saying he is willing to give up anything and everything he can if it means loving a brother or sister in Christ. He's saying, I would give up meat. I would give up whatever it is. He would give it up if it meant helping or moving along or encouraging the faith of another Christian. What he was doing was following actually just the pattern that was set before him by Jesus himself. Salt Company, he was God. Jesus was God. 
Not maybe God, not kind of God, God. He was in perfect relationship with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. He had no problems. And the Bible tells us that although he was God, he laid all of it down. He laid down all of his rights and all of his freedom. Why? To love you. He became a human being, a baby, and then eventually a prisoner of the state and then executed, right? You can't get any, any more sacrificial. You can't give any more up than Jesus did. That's incredible that he would do that for us. And so if he asked us, hey, can you give up drinking around this person? Yes, can you give up whatever it is? I don't mean to keep going back to that one, but what is that thing that maybe he'd be like, hey, give it up, please. It would change everything about the way we live and it would radically change the way people view Jesus and his church if we adopted this attitude. And here's the tension that I feel in the passages. Honestly, the passage is way more about arrogant Corinthians who had all of this theological knowledge and they were using it as an excuse to do whatever they wanted. Thankfully, I don't know a lot of you who are going around whacking people over the head with the Bible saying I can do what I want, right? That's just not the culture that we have. But I do wanna say a few things. For those of you who maybe do feel like you have the theological high ground on others, okay? Some of you are really, really, really smart, much smarter than me, but you're not loving at all. Actually, your knowledge of God turns people away from God because of the way you use it. You use it to lord over them, not serve below them, right? A greater knowledge of God always leads to a greater love of people. If your knowledge doesn't lead to love, then your knowledge is wrong or you're using it wrongly. The greatest theologians are the ones who lives, live lives that are full of love. So that's my quick little note because I think most of us are more like me. We're actually way too self-absorbed to be even concerned with other people. Like we can't get to the being arrogant part yet because we haven't even thought of who we might be acting this way towards. We need to move our eyes up off of our phones and to the world around us because the overarching principle of this passage is love and there was this this thing that uh, Francis Chan if you know him incredible pastor he said in a sermon on this text once he said this thing that kind of blew my mind I'm going to say it to you or kind of make you walk through it okay I want you to really uncomfortable look at the person next to you seriously look him in the eyes like get kind of weird about it look him in the eyes okay okay there we go Yep, too weird, too excited. Here we go, come here. All of you are like red in the face, really uncomfortable. All right, hey, pull it together now. Listen to me. You might be looking at that person a hundred years from now. Okay, what I mean by that, this is what I mean by that, is if you know Jesus, and even if you don't, we are not just destined to live this life here and now, right? There is an eternal life to come when Jesus recreates the heavens and the earth, creates the new city of God, and we live in it. But what this passage is saying, and the heart behind it, is that you might be living in a way that is hurting someone's ability to live in that place 100 years from now. It says you can ruin their faith. What does that mean? Like, think about that. A hundred years from now, I'm going to be looking at you, Emily. 
A hundred years from now, Molly, Josiah, guys, this has been bothering me like crazy because I don't live in a way that loves people like it's gonna matter a hundred years from now. I'm so busy living my instant pleasure life that I never take the time to think about the way that my actions might be affecting other people. It has ruined my life in the best way to actually begin to love people. I used to do whatever I could to get into the shortest line in the grocery store, keep my headphones in or be on the phone so I wouldn't have to talk to a stranger. That's disgusting. But that's my heart. I had an opportunity to talk to someone in that moment who's going to live forever. And if I had the faith and the belief in the God that I say I believe in, that moment could have been a moment that lasted a hundred years into the future for the better, not ignored because of my little kingdom I wanted to live for right now. If you knew that the things you were doing affected someone a hundred years from now, what would it change? What would it change? I mean, guys, Paul literally said once in Romans, he said, I wish I was cursed and destined for hell if it meant Jewish brothers of mine would come to know Jesus. And in case you're like, that sounds kind of like you're exaggerating. He literally says first, I'm not exaggerating. The Holy Spirit is telling the truth. He literally says that. It's in the Bible. He loved people that weren't even Christians so much that he was basically saying, I'd rather be cursed and destined for life without God forever if it meant a few people I know could make it in. Everything about this incredibly brilliant apostle's life was actually moved, oriented around, and, and focused on love. On love. Because Jesus came. The Christmas songs we sing, his law is love. And his gospel is peace. And I want to ask you, like, what freedoms would you give up for the love of others? What extent would you go to to love other people, but I want you to join me in saying, I'm sick of being just so worried about me. I think the reason most of us are so frustrated with malfunctioning Christian lives is because we're trying to live them for ourselves and we're not actually doing the thing that Jesus said was life with him, which is to love people. To love people. And so I got to this place of frustration because I was like, God, I want to love people. I want to love people. I want this to be true of me. I want to act in a way so that in a hundred years from now, the way I treated those of you whose names I called and all of you, that everything I say from this stage would love you into eternity, so to speak. What will do that? What will help our hearts? It's that verse I tucked away. That verse I told you I tucked away. Here's how we can live like this. Verse three, if anyone loves God, he's known by him. Okay, I'm gonna unpack that. If anyone loves God, he's known by God. Here's something that I hope you find to be true as you continue to grow in Christ and that I found is the more I learn about God, the more amazed I am that he chooses to know me. The more I learn about God, the more amazed I am at the fact that he wants to know me and that he does. And that word isn't like, oh, hey, I know you. I added you on Facebook, right? No, it means like God, like he knows you. 
he actually probably knows you better than he knows yourself, and he still loves you like crazy. In The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, a book about Chronicles of Narnia and Aslan, if you've ever read it, the lion, Aslan, the God figure, someone asks about him. He says, Eustace says to Edmund, Edmund, do you know Aslan? And Edmund says, yes. Well, actually, Aslan knows me. Aslan knows me. Do you, do you feel that? Like, I hope I'm not the only one feeling that right now. Like, God, so many of you in this room, either knows you or desperately wants to know you. He wants to know your failures. He wants to know your successes. He wants to know the part of you that you would refuse to show anyone else, not so that he can expose it, so that he can free you from it. Like, God knows you. You're not an obligation to him. You're not stressful for him. He knows you. Like, what the heck? The compliment I get the most is, man, that was, you're such a great speaker. You're such a great speaker. That was such a great sermon. And guys, I love that. That's great. But the one I wish I heard and want to hear more, actually, for the rest of my life is, you just love people. Just when I'm around you, I just feel loved. And that'll happen if I marvel every day at the fact that God knows me. See, when you begin to learn about God, don't just learn about God. Marvel at the fact that that God you're learning about knows you and that he wants to know everyone else around you. God's love is not prejudiced. It's not holding out on anyone. It's for everyone. God knows me. And the most incredible thing about the way of Jesus is that it gave us back the thing we needed most, life with God, and he wants to give it back to other people. So I'm going to end this way. Here's the thing that I've been doing, and it, it will mess you up, I promise, is I try to start every day, and I say, God, help me love people today more than I love myself. Make me aware of the person, Christian or not, who no one will even speak to, smile at, and just needs to be loved today. And I think if you start in that place, knowing God hears you, he's not ignoring you, I think your life will begin to change. Thanks for letting me take a lot longer. I'm going to pray. I love that idea that it's far greater to be known by God than it is to know God. And that actually, Jesus, the more we know about you, the more amazed we are that you know us. The more ridiculous it seems that such an incredible, beautiful, loving, relentless God would come after such a broken person as me. And so tonight, God, I just, I just pray that you would use your word not anything that I've said, but actually just your Holy Spirit to speak to each of us. And then as we sing, would we not be in a hurry checking the clock, but would we just sit in the presence of the God who knows us and yet loves us no matter what he knows about us? And would we just be swept up in the reality 
that we have a relationship with God and can show that to other people. Would that blow our minds? In Jesus' name, amen. Sweet. So before we sing, I actually wanted to bring Luke and then Madigan Marchesani up on stage. So you can, you can clap for them if you want. They're pretty cool. Yeah. So I'm going to do this now because we're going to sing a bunch and worship, and maybe this will just cause you to be grateful to God and, and maybe cry. I don't know. I might do that. But guys, so these two are transitioning off of our staff team. So Madigan is going to go become a student teacher and probably be an incredible light for the gospel wherever you go. There's no doubt about that because that's what you were here. And a lot of you, if you've gotten to know Madigan, it's incredible, isn't it, to know her, right? And if you haven't, I'm sorry, you missed out, right? Because she really does display the character of Jesus in incredible ways. But she's going to go be a teacher, and she needed some room in her life to, to do that. And so we're kind of saying, we're going to miss you, but you're going to go. And then Luke is actually getting married at the end of December, December 31st. And he feels like, yeah, you can clap for that. That's good. And, and after praying, uh, I've prayed a lot with him. He's talked a lot to uh, his soon-to-be wife. They actually feel like God's calling them out to Colorado. There's some really great job opportunities for his wife out there that they're looking at. Um, and then honestly, I think he's just being sensitive to the call of the Holy Spirit. And so we want to bless that. And we're grateful to you, man, for all that you've given us, all the creativity, the life. And um, it's been a privilege for me and I think for a lot of them to be ushered into the presence of God by you and to learn from you, even if you were a little awkward sometimes, right? Like right now. But I will miss uh, a sassy worship leader. That will be someone smart talking to me. That's okay. I'm going to miss you. But guys, I just, I don't want these to be just people that only the staff and a few people honor and love. And so um, I'm going to pray for them really quickly, and then we're going to sing our brains out, because what better thing to do than sing to the God who loved us and now allows us to be known by him, right? So I want to pray for you guys. Love you both so much. And then we're going to sing. And we're going to sing a bunch of Christmas songs. So let's pray. Jesus, I'm so grateful for Luke and Madigan, but I know you're even more grateful for them because you knit them together in their mother's womb and you pursued them relentlessly until their hearts were softened and they found you. And now their lives will never be the same. And their eternities will never be the same. And so while we say goodbye on this side of eternity, I long and look forward to the day where we won't even know what goodbye means. We won't even understand what that word means because in the new heavens and the new earth, we will never have to say goodbye. But God, because we have to say goodbye for now, I pray that you would use them in incredible ways to bring your kingdom to earth in places it would have never been otherwise. Would you bless them in their marriages? Would you bless them in just their walks with you? And would every day that they walk with you be better than the last day and better than the last day so that on the day that they go home, that would be the best day they've ever had with you? Would that be true of all of us? And God, as we sing about Christmas, as we sing to you, would you just sweep us up and capture us in your love? In Jesus' name, amen.